Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I am your host, and for today's episode, The Haunting World of a Vampire. Yes, today, Bram Stoker's Dracula. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past, and this week I went to a rare book club. It happens weekly, so it isn't rare in occurrence, but it is a book club that is more like a lecture series about rare old books. This week, they were discussing Galileo's Il Saggiatore, and I gotta say, I was in over my head. I had no idea that it was going to be like this, not just like an overview-y style lecture of the book, but like a proper deep dive into the book and its meaning and its different versions, the watermarks, you know, it's just insane. These are the condensed facts that I can recall for you because I did retain some of the information. This book was majorly important because it detailed that the Earth revolved around the Sun, which is also known as heliocentric. There were an estimated 600 printed in Rome, published by Muscardi, who was the leading printing press in Rome during this time. It was printed in 1623, and as I said, 600 were printed. They estimate that around 120 remain, which is great for us and great for the people who were discussing all this because it means that they have a wide pool to gather information from. And, I mean, they were all professors from America and London and they were making inside jokes about the book, which was great, but I knew nothing about it. And basically, it all went over my head. So what I want to say is hopefully those initial facts that I was just able to recall from you, which is probably the bio of a Wikipedia page, was enough to satisfy you, dear listener, because, yeah, everything else was just beyond me. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website, just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod. So headlong, they are all free for use for all to enjoy. Also, all the episodes are on YouTube with closed captions if that is more your cup of tea. Here we go. Dracula. What a book, honestly. I've said this a few times in previous episodes, but I really had no interest in horror literature because the idea just seems so dull to me, to be completely honest. How could a book scare you? Don't worry, I'm not about to say that this book gave me a breakdown or a heart attack, but I think it did a fantastic job in unnerving me. For some context on that, I used to, and still do, love taking night walks, especially in winter, and the first time I read this book, I actually listened to it. It was 2020 and peak COVID lockdown in Sydney, and so yeah, I used to just go on these really long walks through the streets because I thought it was not only good for your health, but also just a chance to see a different face of the world. And for a week or so, I spent my life listening to Dracula. Now, this was my first audiobook experience where I had multiple voice actors as part of the lineup. So it was brilliant from that point of view, but the story itself was just so vibrant and rich, so delicious and dark, one can't help but love it. 
They genuinely do such an amazing job and it works so well for this particular story because it's an epistolary novel which means it is told through letters, diary entries, there are some news articles thrown in for good measure. But yeah, basically, it's told from the diary entries of characters within the story, which adds a whole level of depth on its own merit. But for the sake of having different voice actors, it is great because each actor brings to life the character of the novel that they are playing. I think now a little overview of the story, and it goes a little something like this. Dracula is about the vampire Count Dracula and his plot to overrun England in all things devilish and evil. He engages a lawyer by the name of Jonathan Harker who visits his castle in Transylvania from England to finalise the sale of some properties the Count has purchased in England. The Count then makes his way to England to start infecting innocent people with the kiss of the vampire to turn all into the undead and overrun the earth. A small band of doctors and friends band together to rid the world of this evil stench once and for all and the only way to do this is to kill the King Vampire Count. Dracula. I think I have spoken long enough about how good this book was. How about we have a quote just so you two can see, or hear, I guess, how good it is. This is a quote that comes from the early stages of the novel when Jonathan is in the coach on his way leading up to Dracula's castle, and it goes, At last there came a time when the driver went further afield than he had yet done, and during his absence the horses began to tremble worse than ever and to snort and scream with fright. I could not see any cause for it, for the howling of the wolves had ceased altogether. But just then the moon, sailing through the black clouds, appeared behind the jagged crest of a beetling pine-clad rock, and by its light I saw around us a ring of wolves with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long sinewy limbs and shaggy hair. They were a hundred times more terrible in the grim silence which held them even when they howled. For myself I felt a sort of paralysis of fear. It is only when a man feels himself face to face with such horrors that he can understand their true import. All at once the wolves began to howl as though the moonlight had some peculiar effect on them. The horses jumped about and reared and looked helplessly round with eyes that rolled in a way painful to see. But the living ring of terror encompassed them on every side and they had a perforce to remain within it. I called to the coachman to come, for it seemed to me that our only chance was to try break out through the ring and aid his approach. I shouted and beat the side of the caleche, hoping by the noise to scare the wolves from that side so as to give him a chance of reaching the trap. How he came there I know not, but I heard his voice raised in a tone of imperious command and looking toward the sound saw him stand in the roadway. As he swept his long arms as though brushing aside some impalpable obstacle, the wolves fell back and back further still. Just then a heavy cloud passed across the face of the moon so that we were again in darkness. So that was the quote. I mean, it's fantastic. Absolutely rich with language. And the novel feels like it's on a very large scale. And in a way, it is in the sense that Dracula wants to take over the world. But the story is told through the eyes of only a handful of characters. And these characters are Jonathan Harker, Mina Murray, who about midway through the novel marries Jonathan and becomes Mina Harker, Lucy Westenra, Dr. Stewart, Abraham Van Helsing, or Dr. Abraham Van Helsing, I should say, and then a handful of news excerpts, uh, you know, papers, whatever, etc., etc. So the story is actually told through quite a concentrated lens of individuals, giving the story this incredibly personal feel, while still making the story feel grand. 
The point of view doesn't feel limiting or small scope and I think that's actually because of another wonderful aspect of the novel. The fact that it changes so much about what kind of story it is. In the early stages of the novel, you are solely in the care of Jonathan Harker's journal as he makes his way to Dracula's castle. As a lawyer, he is helping finalise the sale of some places in England sold to the Count, and so is visiting his castle in Transylvania to do so. While there, he is at first happy to oblige the Count and indulge in some of his fancies of staying up all night to talk. However, as the story unfolds page by page, Jonathan starts to suspect something odd, but isn't quite sure what it is, and so over time begin to learn how he is really a prisoner, and the story is not just one of horror, but is also of the slow descent of a man falling into madness. The first part of this story is so rich, its language so colourful and embellishing in its narrative, I think it needs another quote just to highlight it a little more. And the quote goes like this. Suddenly, I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard the Count's voice saying to me, Good morning. I started for it amazed me that I had not seen him since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. In starting, I had cut myself slightly but did not notice it at the moment. Having answered the Count's salutation, I turned to the glass again to see how I had been mistaken. This time there could be no error, for the man was close to me and I could see him over my shoulder. But there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed, but there was no sign of the man in it, except myself. This was startling, and coming on top of so many strange things was beginning to increase that vague feeling of uneasiness which I always have when the Count is near. But at that instance, I saw that the cut had bled a little, and the blood was trickling over my chin. I laid down the razor, turning as I did so half round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demonic fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe that it was ever there. "'Take care,' he said. "'Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country.' Then, seizing the shaving glass, he went on, And this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. Away with it. And, opening the heavy window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung out the glass which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. Then he withdrew without a word. It is Bram Stoker's embellished language that really helped construct a clear image of the situation and what it would look like. The first few hours of reading are some of my favourite in literature, and I just love the whole period to the point that I actually feel sad when it comes to an end, but it does and that's when the story shifts to a different tone. The novel dramatically shifts away from Jonathan's diary, and we are left on a bit of a cliffhanger as to whether he lives or dies, with the story now centralising around his partner Mina and her friend Lucy, both of who are wrapped up in love, and it, it is actually a bit refreshing as we understand what life has been like outside of Dracula's castle. For this brief period in the novel, it's almost a love story in the traditional sense, although there is a foreboding sense looming over because... Mina is wondering what Jonathan is up to and why he isn't responding to her letters, and all the while we are aware that he is not in a very ideal situation. The next part of the novel is one that is quite fascinating. 
external pieces along with little drips of information start to feed through about the looming threat of vampires and Dracula coming to England to take over. And what we get now is more of a detective novel as characters like Van Helsing and Dr. Stewart have to piece together information to understand what is happening. And of course, the idea of a supernatural threat to them is not really at the forefront of their thoughts. And then, of course, the part of the novel where information catches up to the situation and the hunt for the king vampire begins. It is these different narrative layers that not only enhance the story, but keep it fresh and moving along. You don't come away feeling bogged down in one narrative arc. If anything, you are left wanting more. So, ultimately, what makes Dracula so compelling? What makes any story compelling? The villain. Dracula himself is the star of the show for a range of reasons. He is completely evil, savage and brutal, and yet in his isolation there is a sadness for him, an aura of loneliness. He is the gothic wanderer, condemned to walk the face of the earth, unable to experience it as the living, and yet unable to escape it. He's intelligent and charming when he wants to be, but is constantly driven by a bloodlust that is his source of energy. And of course, Dracula is pure evil, set against the goodness of Dr. Abraham Van Helsing, who is the embodiment of not only pureness, but also, as he is an older character, the old world standing up against modern issues. The idea that the old world is solid and things were better in the past in good old England. So I think that's a nice little segue to have a little chat about the political motivations of the novel. If you have listened to my earlier episode, The Beetle, which was episode 15, you will know of what I'm talking about. But of course, I will recap and go into a bit more depth here. While laboring under the illusion of a horror story about vampires, there is actually a deeper motivation for writing a novel such as this. During this period in England, there was a fear towards external threats, immigration to be more specific. The whole novel can be examined through the lens of this fear of eastern threats upon England. Pure, pure England. Dracula is the threat that comes to its shores and wants to subsume all that is pure about society. Think about the death of Lucy Westenra, a young white virgin who is consumed by Dracula and pays for it with her life. And it's this duality of women that is not only prevalent in literature, but all life. A woman is either a virgin or a whore, the loving mother or the devouring mother, a saint or a sinner. We have the beautiful virgin Lucy who, after she has been bitten, becomes the seducing femme fatale. Back in Transylvania, Jonathan has a run-in with three vampire women who, like Lucy, are destructive, seductive, and try to poison Jonathan in comparison to his trusting partner, his loving and kind partner, Mina. It is this portrayal of Eastern influences upon what is this pure England that is the major political force behind the novel. Something else to note now approaching this story from a more modern perspective is situations that arise that now give me a slight chuckle. I'm talking about situations of a classist behaviour and sexism which you might think is not that funny, but I think it is funny because... It's reflecting methods of thinking that were true and it exposes a stupidity that was prevalent across especially upper-class individuals. For one example, there is a scene where Van Helsing and Dr. Stewart have given blood transfusions to Lucy, who, 
because she has been bitten by a vampire, her blood is draining, and they of course can't figure out exactly why at this stage in the story her blood is draining so quickly. And so they have given her blood and can't give any more without risking their own health. And Van Helsing is like, quick, quick, we need more blood or she will die, and us two men are spent of our blood. And then he looks around the room and sees the servants and hesitates looking at them, and then he decides that their blood isn't up to the quality of the upper class citizens. And, I mean, I just love the whole fact that two doctors, Dr. Van Helsing and Dr. Stewart, are fully prepared to let Lucy die rather than give her servants blood because it's not up to the quality. And then, of course, throughout the novel, there's the casual sexism of, you know, us men are strong and women would faint if she saw what we do, blah, 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 etc., etc. So you've got to navigate that, but it's, yeah, it's ridiculously funny. All that being said, the story really is an achievement. Modern storytelling mixed with mythical elements to bring a frightening story that is still compelling to this day. And perhaps sadly to say, the social and political motivations for it, i.e. the fear of immigration, is also still relevant today, which is almost a comically sad thing to admit because the threat is manufactured, basically. So what would I rate this novel out of five? Well, I have read it twice and I'm still eager to reread it, so it will be a 4.8 out of five for me. It's worth a reread and this is damn near up there with one of the best books I've ever read. So what am I reading this week? This week I am reading a novel by Laura Esquivel entitled Like Water for Chocolate, which is a fun novel told through 12 chapters, each a different month, and with each month a recipe at the start of it, which is incredibly fun. It's a similar writing style to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, so if you're a fan of that sort of luminous, magical and summary prose, you will probably like this, and it's about forbidden love and basically how to navigate that nightmare. So, yeah, I'm loving it. It's a nice little read. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. But as always, of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So... I think it's time to end this episode, and today to take us away, I think a bit of E.M. Forster, and he writes, We must be willing to let go of the life we have planned, so as to have the life that is waiting for us.